Hi, this is Kate Fairweather. Please forgive the quality of this podcast because it was edited in a car driving from Texas to New York, and I'm afraid that I just didn't do the best job. There's a learning curve here, and I'm still learning. I appreciate your patience. Well, now I can't see you. Why not? Down at the bottom, there should be a little, like, a camera icon. That's me. Yeah? Let's see where you are. You there? Well, I can't see you. Can you see you? I, no. Hmm. Well, I'm getting pictures. Down at the, yeah, down at the bottom, there should be a speaker and then a microphone and then a camera and then a phone. No. No? Well, that's okay. We can do it without picture. It'll probably make it sound better. Oh, I see you now. Hi. Oh. <laughs> There he Does is. Look better? Yeah, that looks fine. You're in the picture. Or is that too hot? <laughs> that was Which fine. Which one do you like? This one? The bright one? No, one? it makes you turn yellow. But <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> Whatever's better for you. All right, let me see if I can find out how to plug this thing in. Oh, here. Cool. How does that sound? That's pretty good. Can you get a little like this? more volume on your end? How's that? That's good. It's so frustrating. I'm sorry. <laughs> But now that you've got it, it shouldn't be a problem anymore. Let me figure this out. Yep. Two old farts online. That's what it is. This is Disaster Tales. I'm Kate Fairweather. Today we'll be talking about the 2004 hurricane season that devastated Florida. In 2004, Florida survived one of its worst hurricane seasons on record. On August 13th, just 22 hours after Tropical Storm Bonnie moved across northern Florida, Charlie, a Category 4 hurricane, made landfall in the Punta Gorda area. Hurricane Charlie packed 150 mile an hour winds as it moved northeast across the Florida Peninsula. On September 5th, Hurricane Francis moved across Florida from the Atlantic. Damage was heavy and 46 counties received federal disaster declarations. September 16th, Hurricane Ivan struck Gulf Shores, Alabama. Ivan moved north from the Gulf of Mexico and looped through Louisiana, Alabama, Georgia, and northern Florida before hitting the Atlantic Ocean. There, Ivan, by then a tropical storm, looped south and passed across the southern tip of Florida back into the Gulf. Hurricane Jean hit Haiti September 16th. Over 200,000 people were left homeless, and an estimated 3,006 fatalities occurred due to mudslides and flooding. On September 25th, Hurricane Jean made landfall in Hutchison Island, Florida, and Port St. Lucie, Florida, at Category 3 strength. This is the same place Hurricane Francis struck Florida three weeks earlier. My co-host today, from high in the rolling hills above Sebastopol, California, is John Harrell. Hi, John. Hi! Let me ask you first, how are you doing today, John? <laughs> I'm doing pretty well. I've got, it's interesting. I was watching the, the news on Florence, mm-hmm. and that was my first um, assignment was back, and I don't remember the year, but it was the busiest year that Florida had in, in hurricanes. And that's when you and I met down in Daytona Beach. That was 2004. And 2004. Mm-hmm. That's 
quite a few years ago. <laughs> uh, and I'm still in touch with some of those people, as I am with you. And uh, it was interesting. It brought back a lot of those memories and um, the experiences and the good work that so many of those people that in our office did for the people that were affected by their, by their disasters there. Oh, I know. So well, I'm doing pretty well. Good. To answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Well, we had four hurricanes and one tropical storm hit Florida in 2004. The first, right. one, the first one was Bonnie, and she was a tropical storm. Well, she came across and flooded the central Florida fairly, fairly badly. But then on the 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 disaster was declared for the eight eight nine and to eight fifteen, which is August 9th to August fifteenth in two thousand four. <clears throat> And that's what we were. That's what we were deployed for was to go work on Charlie. And if you remember how we got our group together, was that there was all of the people that were working in recovery centers standing in one group, and they said, "Get into groups of seven, and we just stepped together. Yeah, you and me and uh, the gentleman that first ran it who got sick. I can't remember his name. And Annie, Harry, Harry was our mitigation yes. guy. Yep. And I don't remember looking around, going around the, yeah. <laughs> going, going around, around the, going around the, the seats, trying to think of who everybody was. And then we picked up some real good friends there. We picked up Joanne and uh, Tony and Connie. Mm-hmm. They were all, they were all local hires there. We needed extra people to work. So they came and worked <clears> with <throat> us there. And then after that, we just started getting more people and training them and more people they go somewhere else and then we get more and train them again. <laughs> so, well, as I recall, we were one of the busiest centers in the state that year, as I recall. Definitely. So, and I, I didn't know that until after. Really? The, the, yeah, until after I came back from the depo- being deployed there, that we were one of the top two or three disaster center recovery centers in Florida that year. Yeah, we were the busiest for quite a long time. I remember coming to work and there being 80 people in line. And then we'd let them in and we'd work all day. And you'd feel bad when you had to use the restroom because you'd have to get up and leave while all these people had been waiting for hours. And then when we came back, and then by the time we closed, which was 12 hours later, there would still be 40 to 60 people in line mm-hmm. outside waiting to come in that we had to tell them to come back the next day. Yeah. So we were running. That was hard. We were running a tremendous number of people through there. And we were there for Charlie and then her, <laughs> and then Francis was coming. Hurricane Francis. Francis came on September 4th or right around that area. But they put us all on a plane and sent us to Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. Right. Yeah where we wandered around looking for Gladys Knight's chicken and biscuits place. <laughs> and, we, and we found it, but it was closed. So, But we stayed at the Omni upstairs from CNN. I remember that. Mm-hmm. And then, I remember that. It was, uh, it was such, we had just, I think we, it felt like we had taken over that whole, that entire hotel. There was 800 of us in there. With uh, people from Florida. Yeah, 800 yeah. of us. <laughs> That's a that lot. was an incredible relocation. Mm-hmm. And we still didn't take everybody that needed to go. We, they left a bunch of people down in South Florida 
bunch of female mm -hmm. workers down there. And they weren't all very happy about that either. So then we were up there, and if you remember, that's where our federal coordinating officer, I cannot remember the lady's name, but she talked about getting locked in the cemetery. Do you remember that? A little bit. Refresh me if you can, please. <laughs> She's, she was saying, she said, well, a friend of mine and I went to see one of the old... Um, one of the old cemeteries here in town because you know they're ancient they've been around for a long time and it said on the sign it closes at six so they went in about 5 30 and they were looking around walking around and when they came out it was about 10 after six and the door was locked they could not get out <laughs> so, what happened to them well she said she called 911 and she said we're stuck here in the cemetery it's they closed the gates at six, and the woman said, mm, 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 mm. <laughs> <laughs> That was our 911 operator. So they went, they sent somebody to let her out. But that was, I thought that was really funny when she told us about that. <laughs> After that, we went back, and my hotel was destroyed. Wow. If you remember, I know, and I've told the story on my last podcast so I'll tell it quickly somebody called me before the hurricane before we left on Francis and said look at the TV isn't that Jim Cantori in front of your hotel and I said uh oh <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough when I came back that hotel had to be torn down it was completely gutted oh. and it was undermined it was right on the beach and they had to tear it down fortunately across the street was the drive-in church they had converted an old drive-in into a church <laughs> And so you could pull up on Sunday and put the little little speaker on your window and listen to the service and then drive out <laughs> without ever having to leave your car, <laughs> which I thought was something typically Floridian, actually. Yeah, it was a fun fun exposure, different part of our our country. It was yes, and we were in Daytona Beach, which was the it was Volusia County, the entire county. Mm -hmm. And after that, Ivan came through, and Ivan pretty much stayed west of us but i believe that's the one where is that the one where we were at annie's at our bosses and she said that they had called from orlando and wanted us to drive in to orlando you remember yeah and everybody was freaking out and i finally just said i'm not dying for fema i'm gonna stay here because <laughs> the rain bands had already started and we were gonna have to drive through them closer to the eye to get to the to the office so we finally found somebody that said I don't know who told you that but that's stupid <laughs> so <laughs> we stayed where we were and that was good yeah I remember we sheltered in place in Daytona for that uh, that event mm -hmm. and I think that was the smart smart thing for us to do and far safer than traveling around oh and that road that we would have to go to was dangerous anyways they had people killed on there at least once a week mm -hmm. so yeah I was I refused <laughs> and I, then somebody said, well, you could lose your job. And I went, oh, well, at least I'll be alive. <laughs> so that was good. And then Jean came after that. And Jean came on 924. And she was she didn't bother us at all. We were we just kind of stayed in the hotel and they had a big thunderstorm. It tore up west of us. And Jean was one of the ones that looped out in the Caribbean. It made a, a 360 degree turn. Are you still with me? I'm still with you. Um, 
we may have a bad connection, although I am two feet from my router. <laughs> well, we'll work with it. Okay. But, um, yeah, Jean and Ivan both, but Jean especially, she made a 360-degree de turn east of Florida before she came down and went through Florida. And Ivan did that as well, but the, he did it in the Gulf. Mm. So he came out of Florida and went into Alabama and then went back yeah. into Florida or some such thing. We'll have to as look. our dear friend Annie would say, she turned around and went into L.A., lower Alabama. <laughs> yes. Yeah, she was from Alabama. She was a charming, a charming southern lady. Oh, she is. <laughs> yeah, I just heard from her recently on Facebook. So. Well, good. I don't know if she's if she's going to listen to these or not. I think I think she is, but I don't know for sure. So if she is, you can say hi, Annie. Hello, Annie. Good to hear see you. Hopefully, sometime. <laughs> Hope you're doing well. In the future, yeah. She retired from yeah. FEMA. Oh. I remember seeing that. Yeah, but you know, you she can had a long career with FEMA. She did, and uh, in um, in applicant services. Mm -hmm. And yeah. she ended up managing our recovery center, which was, like you said, the, one of the busiest ones in the state. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was a nice collaborative team working in that recovery center. Uh, I remember just being amazed at how compassionate each of the workers were that we're, we had on our team. Yep. And how Annie backed us and supported us and... Uh, was always interested. What can we do to? What can I do to help you and support you as a as the applicant recipient or the applicant worker, so that we can serve the people that were affected uh, by the disaster? Um, she had that nice, good capacity to to um, embrace all of that. Yeah, that was. And go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just a, a quality that I I was struck by the workers. Uh, the other female workers that came in from other places around the country that worked in our center and the people that ended up being local hires such as Connie that uh, came on with us and just the compassion and the, the dedication to help those people that came to the centers that had suffered such tremendous losses to to work with them to get them the benefits that they were eligible for. And I was quite moved by that. I've still been moved by that. It was one of the things that has kept me kept me going back in wanting to continue the work with FEMA. Yeah, that's yeah, and you were our assistant manager out there by the time we I was Yeah, I was assistant manager with Annie and then when Annie got redeployed, uh, they brought me in as being the manager for that DRC. Disaster Recovery Center. Mm -hmm. And that's that was after I left. I think I left immediately before Christmas. Yeah. You were greatly missed, by the way. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I was looking last night. I know at one point somebody came in from a newspaper and did a story, and um, my picture was in it, which when I had my crew cut. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was kind of looking for that because during that story, we had had a woman come in who had a 12-year-old son mm -hmm. and she was managing an apartment complex and all the apartments were destroyed 
And so she was living with her son in this apartment that had, that was wet, moldy, you know, it didn't have all its windows and stuff like that. And um, her in-laws decided that she wasn't taking care of her son like she should. So they actually kidnapped him and took him somewhere. It turned out, I think they were in Alabama. I'm not sure. But when when she got him and came back, everybody in the place said, you got up and said, hi, I, f- I think his name was John. Hi, John, you know, and and the p- person that was doing the article made a note of that, that everybody was so involved with their applicants that when this kid returned, we all s- just yelled out hi to him. And we had a we had a whole bunch of we had a lot of people and we had a lot of stories there. There were a lot of stories, I, um, and that's what touches me so. And the stories are about people who had, in, in some ways, just incredible trials and challenges and how we worked to help them get through it. Mm-hmm. Some of them, it was harder than others. Yeah. I know that uh, there was a woman who, we, what we now call human trafficking, we identified her. She and her mother and her two children were living in a chicken coop that had been completely inundated during one of the hurricanes. And so it was moldy and nasty and the kids would come in, they'd have rashes all over them. And she told us that the people that she was renting from, I say that in quotation marks, renting, um, that they were making her work that they had an extension cord that went from the back of their house into the, into the chicken coop so she could have use a hot plate. So there's four people living in this chicken coop that was never converted. It was it went straight to, from being a chicken coop to being somebody's home. They never cleaned it and and everybody was getting sick and she said, "I can't go to the store unless they take me and I can't go do this unless they take me." So they never let her out of their sight. She was not documented, and so she was afraid. And so, consequently, these people, these four people, were living in this these horrible, nasty conditions that were making them very ill. And it took us a few days, but once we figured out what was going on, we did manage to get her out of there. We had to send, was it a, did they send a sheriff's deputy out? I think they did, as I recall. Uh, we brought them in. I remember sh- uh, a couple of times the sheriff's came in to assist us. So they got her out and took her to an apartment that her church had offered her. But that was that was the first time I ever actually knew for sure that we were dealing with slavery, with human trafficking. Yeah. I've come across it a couple times since then, but not, not nearly as bad as that one was. Yeah. And I remember other people that were... There's one woman that came in, and she was always talking like this, with her hand and, over her mouth. Yeah, she was always. She'd often come to you, and I just was aware that she was always walking around like that. And then one day, you you came up to me and you said, "We need to help this woman. She doesn't. She lost her teeth in the storm, and she can't get any help and support." And so I remember you worked a good month on her, and she'd always come in with her two children. Um, and you worked a good month uh, with her to make application to get some benefits to have her teeth replaced. 
And then one day she came in, or one evening she came in, and she just would, had her hands down to her side and the biggest smile and her two children. <laughs> <laughs> it was another one of those moments when everybody saw what the story, what the result was and was so happy and pleased with the work that we had done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's... <laughs> and those are the kind of little things that, you know, we can help them with, but under the circumstances, because we're the government, we have to document everything. And, and it took a while to get everything that she needed, all her paperwork in line. But once we did, she did finally get a, get a pair of teeth. And she was so happy about that. Yeah, that was so nice because it's so important. And how, how we relate, relate to other people, if we have a hand over our mouth or we can't smile and we can't eat. And how important the dental health is. Um, and I remember working to, to get the words and the phrasing just right so that it could go through uh, to the people at, back at the um, evaluation center up north. Um, yeah, that's one of the, my, the sweet stories that I tell <laughs> uh, about our time down there. Yeah. And the dedication and commitment of, of you and, and the other workers there. Yeah, they were, uh, they were great. We actually became fast and, and fond friends with most of those people and still in touch with them one way or another, even now. Mm -hmm. Actually, I'm in touch with a couple of people that I, that I met down there and we communicate via email and whatnot. And it's, it's the, it's the satisfaction is in looking, particularly looking back now in this moment is that yes, we made a difference that you made a difference in the work that you did with those applicants. And you can see that result now. Um, and I just, in all the, the years that I worked with FEMA and also with Red Cross, I just, it, the workers were so dedicated and they really made a difference in helping people get back and move on and move through the, the challenges of, of disaster. Yeah, I remember uh, having to have a gentleman thrown out because... <laughs> It, well, there was more than one, but this particular one was a landlord, and he also had people that didn't speak English very well as his tenants, and he had been telling them to get their check from FEMA and give it to him so he could fix their place, their house that they were staying in. And I went, and I when, when they told me, I got a hold of this guy, and he came in, and I said, that money is for them to find housing. He says, they don't have to give it to you. They can go somewhere else. And he lost it. He started screaming in my face. <laughs> and we had a, we had a really great uh, guard there who had, used to be a Victor. New York City cop, Victor. And I just looked over and went, Victor, he needs to leave. <laughs> so Victor escorted him out. And then when he came back, he says, he doesn't need to come back, does he? And I said, nope. Not, not at all. Nope. <laughs> he does not need to come back. But yeah, that was, that was interesting to have somebody screaming in my face because I wasn't letting him cheat people out of money. Yeah. And I think it was nice. Mm-hmm. I'm listening. Oh, I was just thinking. Also, that guy that <laughs> there was a guy that he kept coming in and and there he had some kind of mental mental um, health issues and he kept saying that he needed to have this machine that I guess it's like a muscle stimulator and he needed to have that replaced even though 
it had been damaged or destroyed before any of the hurricanes came, which means that w because we couldn't we couldn't replace it with disaster money because it wasn't destroyed in the disaster. And he was he was very insistent, and I recognized that he had some kind of mental illness. And he came and he just he dumped a <laughs> he dumped a pile of papers on my desk, and you know they were some some of them weren't particularly tidy, and. Um, Apparently, I didn't see this, but afterwards, Annie said to me, you do know he flashed you, right? <laughs> and I said, oh, darn, I missed that one. <laughs> so she told she told Victor he needs to leave and he can't come back. Because so, we had done everything we could for him, and, and he was just coming in with the same request over and over. So, yeah, I feel sorry for folks like that, but, you know, you're... There, you're when you're working with the government, you have to go, there's certain rules, mm -hmm. and you have to face that criteria. I know that um, today, today is, is, is several days before Hurricane Florence is going to hit the United States. And so today I sent out a bunch of posts on Facebook that said what kind of documents they should take with them, and <clears throat> that what they should do, that their pets that if they bring their pets, that they they may they may be able to find. I can't even talk. If they bring their pets, they may be able to find um, a disaster shelter, or they may find a shelter that's pet friendly. Don't leave them there if you can't if you don't have to. And a couple other things, you know, the documents for your vehicle if your vehicle's damaged, and and uh, and the registration phone number and the registration website. So they can get a head start on, because um, the people that are going to the Outer Banks, they're going to lose everything, because it's just going to grind it off. I've been to a disaster there before. That's what happened then, and this one is much, much worse. Yeah. I, that's a good point that you made in reminding people of what to, to have in hand, uh, and even to have backed up someplace off-site in another part of the country. I ran into that this, this summer here in California, up in Lakeport, where they had the Mendocino Complex fires, which was the largest fire, or is the largest fire in, in currently in California history. And so many people were evacuated. Uh, I was up there working and had to um, help my employers evacuate from their, their home. And it's just, it's, it's being that prepared before beforehand like having your documents showing that you do own the home that you have insurance for your home that you have insurance for your car your ownership of your car um your birth certificate utility uh, bill title for your trailer yeah. yeah all those things all of that stuff and, and how much easier it is to get assistance when you have those documents in hand up before the event. That's right, because although you can replace most of them, it, it just takes time, and the more time you take, the more time it is until you get assistance. So, yeah, yeah I think it's a good idea to to say you, you're going to need, you know, if your car is damaged, you're going to need the title, registration, and insurance. You're going to need um, a utility bill to prove that you lived wherever you lived. And, um, you know, if you, ha if you rented, you need a renter agreement. If you if you're paying a mortgage, you need you can bring your mortgage book, whatever. We just have to make those documents uh, part of their record, and, and like I said, not not having them 
immediately slows down the process. Yeah. And it's, um, it's a good thing to remember. And, um, as I often tell people, um, particularly because I live here in California, just north of San Francisco, that when we talk about being disaster prepared and have a day or two of, of um, provisions in, in hand, probably if there's a big earthquake here in California, which I expect to happen, mm-hmm. it's probably better to have five to seven days of, of provisions in, on hand. Um, because when something happens in the Bay Area, everything's going to get shut down and I think grocery stores have a couple of days worth of supplies in hand, and that's going to go in, in no time at all. Right. And it'll be a while before people get back in and get up to running. Well, and um, I noticed during the last disaster that we had a warning for, the last hurricane, normally FEMA always said, you need to be prepared for 72 hours. Now, whoever was issuing this warning was saying, you need to be prepared for 10 days. So they're Good. they're starting to recognize that, you know, of course you can't put 10 days worth of water in your go bag, but <laughs> I mean, unless it's like dehydrated water, <laughs> which that's right, just add water. And, but you know, uh, as far as you, you need to make sure you got your meds, you need to make sure, you know, even if you don't keep them in a bag, have a bag with the documents in it, with some food, with medications, with flashlight batteries, radio, all the things that you'd need so that you can just grab what is, grab the few things that are left that you need and throw them in there if you have to leave your home. Yeah. Now, one of the... Good reminder. Go ahead. One of the things that happened down there, I got a phone call from a woman in Florida after one of the hurricanes, and she said, my house is sinking into a sinkhole. Do you remember remember me talking about that? Yes, go ahead. She said, I said, well, can you get out your front door? And she says, I don't know why she called me, but but I, I said, can you get out your front door? She says, no, it's underground. And I said, well, can you get out your back door? And she said, no, there's snakes all over out there. So I said, is there a window you can climb out? And she goes, well, yes. And I said, well, get your purse. I said, is there anybody there? No. Okay, get your purse, get out the window, get in your car and leave. And I found that sometimes people that are in a stressful situation like that really can't make those decisions that what they should do. So it was, I mean, I was glad that she called me and that she got out of the house on safely, but it was kind of strange to have to answer that phone call. Yeah. And that's why sometimes perhaps someone can, a family or friends can, can role play. If we were in a disaster, we needed to get out of here. What would we do and how would we do it just to talk it through once or twice to get it in, into your head, into the head, so when the, it does happen and they don't have you to call or can't get a hold of someone like you to talk with, to guide them out, that maybe that'll kick in for them. Yeah, I think everybody needs to make sure that they have a, a fire escape plan in their home. We've we've all talked about that here. We all know every room, we have a very small house, and every room has a, a window that you could exit. So I tell them if they if you hear the fire alarm, don't open the wind door and see what's going on. Just go out the window. We'll meet you out front and we'll go back in if we have to go back in. Yeah. Good. Good. Now, do you remember there was a gentleman that came in and cried a lot? Do you remember him? Well, I think I have two of them in, in my head, but tell me about the one you're thinking of. 
Well, there was one gentleman who came in and he was very upset. He was he was taking the stress very hard. He'd lost his home and during during uh, Charlie and then during Francis, his daughter lost her home and she and her kids came to live with him and he didn't have any place to live. So he was in there pretty often, you know, because he was frantic to get assistance. And so finally, he got his money. He got a, a max grant, all the the total amount that FEMA can give you if you lose your everything, if you lose everything. And so he said, is it all right if I buy a mobile home? You know, one of those big campers, you know, says so that way everybody can be in the same place. And he said, it's not a house, though. He said, oh, I don't know if I should do it. I said, it's housing. I said, so if if that's what you want to spend your money on for housing, then that's fine. I said, you won't be getting any more money because you got the the top amount that we could give you. And he said, fine. So so he he was happy and he left. And then about two weeks later, he came in and he was upset again. And I sat down with him and he said, I don't know what to do. He said, this hurricane is coming. I think it was, um, I think it was Jean. Might've been Francis, but I think it was Jean. And he said, I don't know what to do. He says, I've got this, you know, this camper and, and, and the storm is just going to tear it to pieces. And I said to him, didn't you get like a motor home? And he said, yes. And I said, why don't you drive it to Alabama? And he said, oh my gosh, I didn't think of that. Oh, thank you so much. And I never saw him again. And he, and it's just a, I remember it's, it's that. an example of it's, he was so stressed that he couldn't think clearly. Yeah. It's interesting how we get, how those stressful situations can, and I've experienced in some of my times myself, I just get to, I get, I clunk and I can't go out of it until somebody can break that and say, oh, how about this? And then I can move off of that ah, I could have and see it. what the other options are. Well, yeah. and we had another woman come in who was so crying so hard. She was totally hysterical. She was, we could not understand a single word she was trying to say. And I took her in the back because, you know, I wanted her to have as little input as possible, get away from the noise and the confusion. And I sat with her for an hour until she finally calmed down enough and she said I have just moved here two weeks ago she said I have my kids she goes my home is totally destroyed I don't know what to do and so we started talking I said well where did you come from and she told me she'd come from out west and I said well is there any chance you could go back there and she said well I think my mother-in-law would let me move back into where I was living and I said okay I said, so here's what you do. And I had to write her a list that said, go home, get your kids, pack your car, get your purse, get, you know, the whole thing, fill it up with gas. And I, and I wrote her a list and sent her out. And she, I, I, I never saw her again, so I'm assuming she did. But she actually needed somebody to tell her step by step what she needed to do because she was so stressed out. I remember that. I remember that incident. But she was yeah. totally incomprehensible when she came in. I felt so bad for her. But we we got her we got her going. And I think um I think she did get some assistance from FEMA too. Nope, you're gone again. I'm there. Okay. It says poor network connection. 
but I, yeah. I know you're close. <laughs> you're as close as you can get to it. That's fine. <laughs> we'll do it. We'll do it. That's what editing's for. It's Let's okay. see. We also had uh, the couple that raised cats and gave us our cats. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. I know. They. Um, what happened was that they raised Abyssinians uh, for show, and they're during the first hurricane their cattery was destroyed, their outdoor building. So they brought the cats in and kept them in, I think, the living room. And then the next storm came in and it destroyed their living room. So they had the cats like in a bedroom. And they had a lot of cats. And I remember the gentleman came in and, and was asking me, he says, does anybody want a cat? <laughs> he says, we, we've got all these cats and, and we just don't have any place to keep them. And and he was afraid they'd get sick and things like that. So he started bringing the kittens up and the cats. And I know I took one of them home, and and you took one of them to home as well, didn't you? I had Magellan. Right. Was his uh, show name. And I had and... Uh, his his name was like Jumping Flash or something. I don't. His father was Jumping Jack Flash. I just called him Bud. <laughs> <laughs> and they're very they're beautiful cats they're very smart and and we we managed to get rid of um well get rid of we managed to help him find owners for most of those cats and i know when i took bud he said to me he says that's a thirty thousand dollar cat i spent thirty thousand dollars breeding and going to shows and everything and he was a grand champion and he was a sweet little kitty yeah, they were gorgeous, beautiful cats, and um, I I could see in his and her face when they came um, how difficult it was for them to part with their family, mm -hmm. their and, cat family. And they were family. They they were they treated those cats with so much care, and I you know my belief is I think those cats did very well in getting you and me as, as foster families for them. Well, I certainly hope so. Poor, <clears throat> poor Bud. He, we have really bad water here that has a lot of calcium in it. And he, he died while I was at Hurricane Katrina from um, <clears throat> urinary tract infection. Yeah. So I was the day, <clears throat> the day before I came home, my husband called me and said, I got some bad news for you. Bud passed away. And I was, yeah, it was not a fun trip home. Yeah, that was difficult. But then we got Perry. Yeah. <laughs> and now Perry rules the internet. <laughs> he does, and I, I see that he's uh, taken social responsibility to the uh, to the utmost, and uh, is and was had run for president the last election. He did. <clears throat> he ran for president against Obama, and then yeah, <laughs> and Obama it, got got elected. Obviously, he did. But that's only because Perry conceded two weeks before. <laughs> and then and now one of his good friends evil cat is running against ted cruz oh good so evil cat for senate is on facebook and uh he's a piece of work because he's evil you know and he, his sign says evil cat for congress evil and of course a republican sorry about any republicans <laughs> listening but <laughs> i mean if you're evil that's what you're gonna do so, <laughs> so yeah, there's that. But um, yeah, they were great. We spent a lot of time with them. We actually spent Thanksgiving with them. Were you there for Thanksgiving? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's when <laughs> that's when we started our imaginary southern family. <laughs> Cuz we were oh, oh, oh yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> We'd gotten very close with a bunch of our local hires and some of our applicants, uh, and oh. everybody had a southern name. And let's see, I'm trying to remember. You were something like Jimmy John or something like that. Oh, you, Jim Bob or John Bob or something. I, I remember reading this, the the updates, the family newsletter updates, and just rolling on the floor. Rolling on the floor, laughing my backside off. <laughs> this is, and I can't oh. remember. Oh, I know. I was Ruby Lay. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> like the Hawaiian flower, because her mother always liked those. <laughs> and I'm trying to think of Annie. One of them was uh, jo Jody was Jolene Diamond, I think, was her name. Yeah. And then one of them was... Her middle name was no. Her name was Tulip, and I don't know. There was some, I cannot remember what Annie's name was, but that was pretty funny. Oh, that was so funny. Yeah. Well, we you know, when you're in that situation, you're away from home and and you're working constantly, and you're so get very close to the people that you work with, and and we do become families, except we just took it the next step <laughs> and became a southern family. <laughs> that lived in a trailer park, and yeah, <laughs> it was the Willow City Swamp Walkers. Swamp Walkers. Yeah. Swamp Walkers. Yeah, that was it. Swamp Walkers. <laughs> yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, it is a tight knit family that evolves um, from those deployments and assignments that we did. Um, each one is very special, and there's a tight bond there. Uh, and a nice support system amongst ourselves for because it's challenging work. It is, and uh, and for example, when I go out, I eat breakfast. I go to work. I find lunch somewhere because not always available when you first get there. And then I go home and home to the hotel. And then as long as Jim Cantori's not in front of it. And then <laughs> and then I um I'm in sleep by eight. I don't eat dinner. I just go to sleep. Because yeah. it's 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 not just it's not so much physically difficult work, but mentally it can be very very difficult. People come mentally in mentally and emotionally terrible problems, and and sometimes you can help them, and sometimes you just can't. It's like the lady whose son got kidnapped. That was, mm -hmm. and she kept coming in, and she we helped her get in contact with the FBI, and and the the boy was. He knew where he, he he knew like the city he was in, but he didn't know anything else. So I told her, I said, next time, because he was talking to her, he'd call her. Next time you talk to him, tell him he needs to go outside and look at the number on the house, and look at the street, and then when he then you he can tell you, and then eventually when she got that information from, him, she went and got him. But uh, yeah, that was that was hard trying to help her with that. <gasps> Because as FEMA workers, we really couldn't do a whole lot. And sometimes your role as a as a government worker and your role as a human being, you know, you can't blend them all the time. Yeah, those are tough situations for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when, you know, having some support from your peers is, is 
helps you get through. That's right, Jim Bob. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yeah, we did. We ended up in having, I know we set up, Harry called this, we'd have so many people in there, and then we set, we originally set the chairs up in rows, you know, side by side in rows. And what would happen is the first, in order to keep their first come first serve order, they'd have to move you know, around in between these chairs and everything, and it became real difficult. So we made a circle of the chairs, and there was an entrance, and people would sit down, and and then as one person or two people got up to go get assistance, everybody would move around the circle. Didn't have to worry about them tripping over the chairs or anything. Harry called that the circle of love. Mm. <laughs> So in Leave the, it to Harry. <laughs> yep, and in the, and he's also the one that came up with the place beaver because he, there was this, he got a stuffed beaver, and people and and the thing about it was it wasn't that you had to explain it to people, the people just started doing it. They'd take the beaver, and if one of them had to go to the restroom, she'd put it in their chair, and if the and if the people moved around the circle, they would pick up the beaver and move it. And put it in the chair that this person was going to come back and sit in so they wouldn't lose their place. And that kind of thing always amazes me how how they just gab, how they just like together, they just kind of make a group decision. And and uh, and they do it and they, they help each other. Nobody tried to jump ahead. Nobody, you know, they all just sat and waited. And when somebody left, they moved to the next position till they were in the in the chair that the next person would go get assistance with the evolution of culture yeah <laughs> it really is and we try yeah. i know you you know i occasionally try to do some of that on my own <laughs> when i'm out it's like, at hurricane <laughs> katrina with the bunny but that's another story <laughs> but yeah i think i like to get people involved in in something i don't know how to explain it kind of like public art or public not communication, public. What am I thinking of? Look, it's a it's a group activity, and I think what happens is that it people begin to connect through that mm-hmm. uh, that activity, whether it's it's moving the bear or the beaver around the, the circle. Um, it's one of the qualities that I saw in you is that you were good in connecting with people one on one, and were sensitive to the people's needs and how they could receive that. And I saw you do that in the group, our group as, as workers and providers, but also in working with the applicants. Um, you were very attuned to, to those cultures, those societies, those norms, those, I don't know what I'm saying, but I, <laughs> you were able to relate to those people. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really important. Well, and... let me tell you a story that happened to me when I was a kid. My sister and I both, and I recorded with Barbara before, but when I was a kid, my dad had a service station. And he would take junkers and fix them up and go do demolition derby with them on the weekend. Okay, so at the one that we had out front at the time was an old, it was like a 60, no, a 55 Oldsmobile or something like that. And I was... I was under 10. I was probably about eight. These people, these elderly people came walking up to the house and their car had stalled about a half a mile away. So they came in and they asked if they could, if we could help them. 
And my dad went and looked at the car and it was dead. There was nothing. He wasn't going to be able to fix it. Not without a lot of money and a lot of time. And so he said, well, here, just take this. These people had, let me go back. These people <coughs> had lost everything in World War II. They had lost all their children in the concentration camps. They had finally gotten, they were, I mean, and they were elderly, very, very old people. They were finally got enough money to come to the United States and go to a nearby town, Binghamton, which has a big Eastern Orthodox and Jewish community. And they were 25 miles from it when their car died. So dad took that <clears> Oldsmobile <throat> and he said, here, take this. And they were so shocked. They just couldn't believe it. They, my, the man was crying. The woman got down on her knees and was kissing my parents' feet. And that made a huge impression on me when I was a kid. And so for me, not helping people is the wrong thing to do. That's, and that's why I'm drawn to, I was drawn to Red Cross. I'm drawn to FEMA. I used to do search and rescue and work with kids at Civil Air Patrol. I just, I help people. That's my thing. <laughs> so that's what I do. <laughs> yeah, you do. You do. Yeah. I remember you telling me that story back when we first met. Mm-hmm. That's a very rich story. That it it just makes and on my sister too. It just made a huge impression on us <clears throat> because mm -hmm. we had never seen anything like that before and never really known anybody with that much need. And that's what I see when I go out to disasters: is people from all walks of life suddenly have all these huge needs just to survive. And I'm glad I'm in a position to be able to help them with that. And they're lucky to have you. Well, they were lucky to have you too, dude. <laughs> well, it's a good team effort, I think. Yeah, I think we I did. That was that. one of the best groups I've ever worked with. I would agree with you. It was uh, an uncanny consolidation of, of effort and work and compassion. And, um, and we had different personalities, but they all clicked. We didn't really have any... any big problems we had one late in the game but that was just a person who didn't really know what they were there for yeah and you get that many people how many ever many people we had go through that drc as as workers that's pretty amazing we had not have any upsets we had at least probably almost 30 people there between the ones that we trained and left and because I, I ended up training quite a few of them. And uh, mm -hmm. I think you may have trained a few of them too. But yeah, I would say that there was at least 30 people we ran through there. But the core group was about a dozen of us. Mm-hmm. That's a, it's a big commitment. Mm-hmm. Still one of the, the satisfying things that I've done in my life. Yeah, it really is. And that was a remarkable situation. I know that... Um, FEMA actually had to change its rules because after the first hurricane, I think the next hurricane <clears throat> was, at some point, the hurricanes were 32 days apart. The incident periods that FEMA declared were 32 days apart. But after the first one, when they heard the second one was coming, a bunch of people bought generators, which are big purchases. Like They were like $800 and, and up, considering... Who, however much the person that was selling them was trying to gouge them, but $800 to $1,000 was about the average of what they could get there. 
And these people came in with their receipts doing exactly what they're supposed to do. And we had looked at the receipts and they were 31 and 32 days out. And so a lot of people got really upset about that. But we contacted the headquarters and said, this is a big problem. These people have done what they're supposed to do. It's within an incident period, if not, you know, <laughs> these hurricanes happened one after the other after the other, and there was just two days where they wouldn't qualify. So FEMA actually changed their rules and included those two days. They changed the incident period to include those, include those days. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's good to see also that the government can be sensitive to people's needs. I think I lost connection here, did I? I got gotcha. you. Okay. I'm just seeing my line, my side over here. So, yeah. Well, good. It's been nice rem remembering these incidences in the in the cases that we worked on, that you worked on. Yeah, it is. In uh, 19, uh, in 2004. What, uh, what do you remember? <clears throat> what's your favorite one that you remember? The woman with the teeth um, was one of them. Um, there were also some other people that I remember um, that had some real health issues that, uh, and in particular, I believe that it was you that worked with them to, to manage their support, their health support, uh, medical care, and through a couple of the hurricanes. And some of them didn't make it all through all the way through the end of the year. They passed. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I know. I had I had two people die because they couldn't find a place to rent. One yeah. of them was on a transplant list, and the other one developed breast cancer. <clears throat> and they were living in moldy homes. And I got in trouble over that because the one time that they put me on a uh, conference call, <laughs> which was a mistake. <laughs> I had been calling hotels there in the area trying to find these people a place to live because they were sick and they needed to or they were going to die, which they did. And on the call, there's a there's a group at headquarters that's supposed to call all these these places and find out what's to rent and make a list of them called rental resources. Well, they had been calling some of the same places that I had and they were complaining that FEMA had just called them and they <clears throat> and so they didn't know you know, it confused the hotels or and the and the rental properties and stuff. So they said to me, "Well, you need to wait for rental resources to make this list." And I said, "I have people who are dying, and if I'm gonna and if and if I can do it, I'm gonna help them." And they says, "Well, you're not supposed to do that. Maybe you should just look at." Uh oh, lost him now. <laughs> I don't know what's happening here. Everything went dark. Oh no. <laughs> I'm still here. Okay. Well, we can go like this. I think your picture will come back eventually. Okay. So anyways, what they told me was you can't make those calls. And then they said, but you can check the newspapers and see if there's any vacancies. And I was so angry that I said, I will check the obituaries. And then when somebody dies, I'll find out if their place is for rent. And <laughs> I was immediately in a lot of trouble. <laughs> I I got off the phone, which I didn't want to be on to begin with. And Annie, Annie's like, "Why did you say that?" I said, "Because it's true." So she managed to smooth it over so they didn't send me home. But I was, yeah, I was really unhappy when they told me that, because like I said, I had people who were dying because they didn't have a place to stay. Yeah, I, 
in so many of the disasters, a, a consistency that I've felt or that I've, I've come to believe is that there's a real disconnect with the people in the field dealing with the, the real, the live situation, the real situation, and the people at headquarters who are doing the assessing and following the, the code. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, there, I felt there was a real disconnect in there. Well, and um, that was frustrating. It, it was very frustrating. But uh, it has gotten a little bit better. But they still need to adopt. They have the pyramid model, you know, where DHS is on top. And then there's the, you know, the regional people and then the the local people, then the reservists, which is what we do, go out when we're called. And then, you know, whoever else, local hires at the bottom with the applicants being crushed by this huge pyramid. And I've I've said often enough and to which nobody seems to like, but I think we should have a tree model where the people, the Department of Homeland Security is the roots, and then the upper management staff is the trunk, and then the branches are the ones that go out to each disaster and set up the places where we work, and we're (coughs) like the twigs at the end of the branches that are holding the fruit, which are the applicants. So the entire system should be supporting the applicants and that would be that uh, unfortunately it visually puts the the lowest paid workers at the top of the <laughs> at the top of the system and they don't like seeing that but but really that's what they that's my belief about what how they should be making improvements is that they're they're there to support us to support the applicants yeah that makes sense. Makes sense, but probably won't make it into the podcast because <laughs> I hadn't seen that. Um, I hadn't heard that uh, that model, the tree model, before. I'm just running it through my head. I <laughs> I um, I like that image. I like that a lot. Well, I just think that if you're looking at it that way, you think that way, and and to me. That's really the way it is, because I have to supply all the assistance I can to these people who've lost everything. And I don't need the people that I'm reporting to to be giving me a hard time because I'm working really hard and and trying to connect them. And uh, but it has gotten better. I think they've taken a little more of the attitude. They haven't taken the model, but (laughs) and they never will. But, (laughs) But I think they're a little bit more sensitive to that that we need them to help us, not we need them to tell us what to do. Um, I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm getting late into my day for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm stepping aside, and I have yet, I've got two clients to get done today. That's right. We're right at an hour. That's good. Oh, okay. Oh, we are. Mm-hmm. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you've cut, edit all the dead space in the in the Oz and hums out and you'll probably have 15 minutes yeah well probably 30 but that's okay <laughs> but thank you for 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 doing this today i'm glad to have you here glad to have you on the podcast thank you kate i wish i had a picture on on here um i'm frustrated that i can't figure this out hopefully i'll figure it out perhaps next time well we'll do it again yeah thank you Thank you for listening to our Disaster Tales podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, or even if you didn't, please leave us a review. The best place to do that is on iTunes. Our music is by Stephanie Cerny. Find us 
on our website, www.disastertales.com. Today's disaster tip comes from Hurricane Katrina. After a disaster, it's often difficult to find family. After Hurricane Tr Katrina, it was difficult to find family members. Some people were evacuated from their homes, children were evacuated from schools, places they were evacuated from did not have information about where they went. Our tip for today is to form a plan. Designate an outside of area contact that everyone has the contact information for. Create a family website so that people can check in. Or Facebook has an app called Safe On so that you can go and check in and let everyone know that you're safe. This will help everyone's anxiety level and focus the attention on those who may be missing. Thank you for listening to Disaster Tales.